This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us. On today's episode, we're in conversation with Dr. Neil Hopkin on the topic of empathy. It's a word that has somewhat lost its meaning a little bit. But what does it mean when it comes to our children? How can we teach empathy in schools and at home? He had some great advice for all of us. We were talking all things sustainability with four students who have been whittled down from 250. They're going to be speaking at COP28 next week. What is their message for us for the future of the planet? It is, after all, in their hands. And turning our climate chats to hospitality. We're speaking to the GM of Conrad Hotel about some things that are happening that us guests might recognise, but also what's been happening behind the scenes. And ahead of Dubai Sevens, speaking to the tournament director, former rugby professional Matthew Tate about what's in store for food, for friends, for family, and yes, for fancy dress too. Discussing empathy, especially when it comes to our children. Dr. Neil Hopkin leads the academic leadership team at Forces Education. He is responsible for strategic development of schools, academic performance, a couple of schools here in the UAE, but also curriculum development, student and family happiness. And I feel like empathy is such... It's, it's, it feels very relevant right now. Can I call you Dr. Neil? I feel like you're like a radio host call-in person. Dr. Neil, is that okay? I'm listening, Helen. <laughs> I'm sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> but why, why, do, why are you, first of all, so passionate about empathy? Why do you feel like it's something we should be talking about? Do you know, uh, Helen, th- thank you for, for having me on. My I pleasure. think uh, this is such an important topic for all of us, uh, largely because we're not very good at empathy. And uh, I think many of us think that we are. And, <laughs> and that means that it's a real problem because what we're, if we're good at anything, we're good at sympathy. Um, but we don't think that. We think that we can be in one another's shoes. I think that I can understand what it is to be you and what you're going through. And you only have to listen to conversations that your friends have and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how you feel. Because, you know, that thing happened to me. Mm. But actually, that thing didn't happen to them. Maybe a similar event occurred, but actually they experienced it very differently. And I think that when we look at the world around us and when we look at the advent of technology and the introduction of AI, which is going to change everything, then we can see that actually the role of empathy is critical. And it's something which is so difficult to learn and it's very difficult to teach. It's very hard to explain um, as, as a concept to a child. How do you begin to do that as an educator and how is it woven into the curriculum? Well, I think children's development path is, is fascinating anyway because... Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're little egos. They are little <laughs> egos. They're, they're completely egos and, and they can't see beyond the end of their nose, literally, can they, of course, when they're born. <laughs> and, but as they develop, there's a, there's a key tilt point which occurs somewhere between three and four years of age. And around about three and a half years of age, children start to be able to understand that what they have just seen happen isn't necessarily what everybody saw. And there's a classic experiment where an object is moved and the child sees it, but the adult that was looking on doesn't see that the object is moved. And you ask the child, so where, when the adult returns, where are they going to look? And of course, the child says, oh, in the place that it's been moved to. But the adult didn't know that. So of course, they won't look there. And at three, that's what they'll say. At four, they won't. They'll say the adult will look at the first place because they didn't know it had been moved. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a critical tipping point in human development around about the age of three and a half when a child is able to uh, maintain a false belief in someone else's mind. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, what that means is they're starting to step away from the ego. They're starting to understand that you see things differently to me. So when we have children uh, in our nurseries and in our schools, then we work on that. And the best place to start, of course, is through you as a parent. You're the first book that any child reads. Your behavior, your role modeling is critical to them. And very quickly that moves into books and your discussion around stories Mm -hmm. and imagining what's happening for those characters and what they might be experiencing and why they might be reacting in the way that they are. I think it's also important to think about, you know, relaying world events to our children, to think about those less fortunate. And that can be a really tricky thing because we don't want to scare our children. We don't want to make them feel guilty for being blessed and safe and loved. But we also want them to understand an element of gratitude as well. Um, When it comes to, I guess, our role as parents, we're thinking about modelling behaviours here, Dr. Neil. Um, How can we we do that? What are some of the very easy, accessible, actionable things that would help introduce the concept of empathy and, and continue to reinforce it? So here's rule number one. Put your phone down. Oh, speaking into my soul now. Okay. <laughs> so many, many parents believe that they are present with their child. Mm-hmm. And you know, how does empathy occur? It, it occurs when we connect. It, it occurs with our eye contact. It occurs with everything that we're doing across the studio now. We're mm-hmm. looking at each other. We're nodding. We're giving that positive affirmation of mm-hmm so that we know that we're engaged. And what parents very often do is they sit alongside their child with a device And they might say, I'm listening to you. Just keep reading to me. I'm listening. But your child is actually seeing that you're not connecting. And in that sense, you're not empathizing. You're not making and bridging that gap between the two people. So I think the first thing to do is actually to put your phone down and role model to your child that when they're speaking, when they have something to say to you, that actually you should be fully present with them. You're with them. Now, of course, moving beyond that, there are other simple things we can do with very young children. um, And they're things that very often parents get wrong. So um, your child might say to you, I runned away. And we might be tempted to say as as an adult, uh, no, no, that's not right. I had Chloe. this last night. I, I cut I cutted this. I cutted this. Yeah. Exactly. And and of course, actually, what's happening there is what you're seeing is this wonderful thing that that happens with human development, which we didn't know about as adults until the late 1950s. We didn't know that actually children didn't learn language in a behavioral way. We, th- we thought it was all behavioral. And then in the late 1950s, an amazing guy called Noam Chomsky said, hang on a minute, actually, this isn't quite how it works. Um, because a child has never heard I run away, they're operating some logic. And so he said they, they're figuring it all out. So it's a wonderful thing, actually, mm-hmm. when your child says, I cutted this. So that's something to celebrate. But what we tend to do as parents, we say, uh, no, Johnny, uh, you, you didn't cut it. We say, I cut this or I ran away. And, of course, what the child hears is no. That's not good enough. Yeah, and there's a separation that's developed between the two of you because of that word. Much better for a parent to say, yes, you ran away. Dr. Neil Hopkins with us in the studio today from Fortis Education. studio from Fortes Education is Dr. Neil Hopkin. He leads the academic leadership team and we're having a bit of a deep dive into empathy today because I feel like in some ways that word has lost a lot of meaning despite the fact it's never been more relevant and we've had some really interesting messages on this Dr. Neil. Jewel says do you think pets can help with teaching empathy to children? Oh categorically they can. I'm uh, I'm very 
afraid of pets. You know, I've, I've, I've managed to transfer that to all of my children. So they're all, also terrified of animals. Uh, but uh, further back in my career, I've, I've been a, a school leader for a thousand years. And so further back in my career, uh, I worked in some very tough, challenging parts of, uh, of London in the UK. And uh, very often we would have children there that had had very difficult uh, backgrounds and very difficult experiences within their family and within their community. And, of course, what you want to do when you see a child like this is, is hug them. Um, but, of course, you can't do that in education. Uh, thankfully, uh, we're a lot wiser nowadays about uh, precautionary measures. But mm-hmm. actually, one of the unintended consequences of that is the child that actually needs a hug because, do you know what? Nobody's hugged them and they can't remember the last time they were touched or hugged. Um, they, they can't get that from within that professional context. And so, fascinatingly, what we found was that actually we could introduce a, a dog and very often they're a bit like me, an old dog that had you know, lost all their energy and we'd bring them into the school and the, the students would be able to hug them and have that affection from this floppy-eared Labrador who would be able to show some affection back to them and they could give that affection because, of course, it's not only about receiving affection but it's about the ability and the opportunity to give affection. To have an outlet for it. Yeah, and see that that's been received positively. Now, you know, does that build empathy in the way that you and I would understand it? We tend to think it's about putting yourself in someone else's shoes, not someone else's paws. But the reality is that actually empathy starts with that connection mm-hmm. between beings, let's say. Absolutely. One heart to another Thinking and caring. About, yeah, needs. And I mean, we have two dogs and we've currently got Gary the Garage Cat, who we've learned as a girl. I'm still keeping the name Gary. Um, and, you know, my daughter this morning woke up at 5.45 and she's like, I think I can hear, I think I can hear Gary. I'm going to go and check and, and feed her. And I was like, all right, this is, this is some good parenting I'm doing here by accident. Um, and a, a long message, but I think it's a really important one. So if you don't mind, um, Anonymous has been in touch saying, thank you so much for this topic. Our daughter is nine, almost 10. At her last parent-teacher evening, her parent her teacher repeated almost word for word what last year's teacher said, which is she's academically excellent but lacks empathy for others. Can be harsh in dealing with friends, very black and white, as a consequence often involved in arguments. I can admit... I've failed her in this. She's an only child um, and I've organised lots of activities and play dates to offset this. But I'll sometimes notice her speaking harshly to her friends or talking down to them and I rarely intervene. I've figured it's better to see her, have her feel the consequences. They'll eventually get sick of being spoken to that and move away. I thought this would work better. I can see I'm wrong. It hasn't worked. And the teacher said during one chat with her, she has admitted that she doesn't know how to be kinder, how to put herself in other people's shoes. I hope it's not too late. I'm not sure what I can do. How can I teach some empathy? Oh, well, look, I, I really feel a great deal of sympathy for you, um, uh, Mrs. Anonymous. Uh, in, and thank you for, for reaching out and asking that question. There's a lot to say to this. The first thing I'm going to say is um, you are not a failure. Parenting is not that kind of a journey. Uh, think about your own childhood and the ups and the downs and the way that you had maybe some wonderful moments with your parents and, and maybe some difficult, more challenging moments times when your parents were there for you and times when they weren't there for you, when you needed that. Um, And yet, actually, you know how you feel about your parents. You know that you love them. You know that you forgive them uh, their inadequacies and their failures as parents. Um, They're not a failure. It's a journey. And and that that parent-child journey is very much about the relationship. So I think it's important to understand some ground rules. You as a parent have not failed in this particular endeavor. That's an important thing. Now, equally... Your daughter has not failed. So she's 
She's very uh, bright and has a lot to say and some opinions, and her teachers have recognized that. That's something to celebrate with her and, and to notice that and to dwell in the moment of the positivity of that with a sense of humility. And so uh, very often if, if people are, are very focused on their own journey, perhaps they're not thinking about um, how that might impact other people. It's good to start in humility and to say, well, you know, I, I don't know why I'm good at music. Uh, you know, I, I just am, but I'm grateful that I am and I'm, I'm grateful that I enjoy it so much. And that's a, a short step to be able to say, um, and playing beautiful music lifts my spirits and, and warms my heart and and then, of course, you're only a moment away from saying, I wonder how other people feel mm-hmm. in terms of hearing your music. Uh, and so there are positive things you can find with a child. And every child is able to do something. Every child is brilliant at something, something. Uh, maybe not the traditional things, math, science or whatever, but actually they're brilliant at something. And so finding things to celebrate with your daughter and then wonder how that wonderful thing might be used to help others or to support others mm-hmm. or might bring uh, delight to other people. That connection. Starts to make that movement away from the ego, away from themselves. A message here saying, why can't we just teach kids to be kind, just kind to the different around them? It starts at our homes and then the teachers. Um, kids are kids. Um, they can be moulded in any way in the early years. So isn't it more about the parents, the adults, the teachers? Oh, I would definitely say it's about the parents. As an educator, I would definitely say it's about the parents. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you've got a role to play as well, Doctor. <laughs> so it's all about proportions. You know, oddly enough, the children spend most of their time with their family or the person that's looking after them at home. And, of course, it isn't always a family member that's mm-hmm. looking after them at home. Uh, but they spend most of the time at home. Proportionally, they spend less time in school. But we definitely are in partnership together with the child. And that's and you often hear as a parent um, uh, that that sense of how how are you coping with your child? My, my child's doing this. Is your child doing that? <laughs> yeah, and then that's us. I'm collect- really struggling with the tween energy right now. For co- example, collectively you go into school and you find your child that you're struggling with with the tween energy is transformed, and suddenly they do exactly what the teacher wants. And you think, why can't they behave like that at home? Well, of course, children are very good at decoding different situations, and they react differently with people. And and developmentally, that's important because it's, it's that child learning where are the parameters in this context and learning how to behave within that. So it's okay for parents to be uh, struggling. However, they very definitely have a role to play. But I would, I would say to, to uh, that uh, listener, the real point here is it's not about teaching your child in a way that you would think of as teaching. All the learning that your child is mostly doing with you is by watching and listening to you. Absolutely right. And I think we know we've got a real opportunity now kind of in the world, you know, in the season to be thinking of others, whether that is, you know, donating toys, talking about those less fortunate, feeding the cat in the garage. And it doesn't have to be sitting down at the kitchen table. And we are going to talk about kindness and empathy. It's just being better, doing better. I can remember inviting a friend around to dinner once who um, worked uh, as a missionary in, in a country far away. And um, he decided he wanted to say a prayer before the meal. And, um, uh, and he gave gratitude for everything on the table, the cutlery, the salt, the table itself. Uh, it, it was something that was very odd to witness. But the longer he went on, and it was a very long time. <laughs> I'm hungry I, here. I was quite hungry. Um, uh, the longer he went on, the more I realized how full of gratitude he was. And I think this is something that, not that we teach our children. I think this is something that we role model mm-hmm. and that we exemplify for our children. And, and they learn to be grateful for those small things. 
We've had a number of messages actually on um, neurodiversity, um, asking about children and neurodiversity and empathy. A message here saying, as an educator, please teach kids about neurodiversity, normalise neurodivergence in the education sector too. Such a good point with thinking about inclusion empathy and being together being on the same team we've run out of time unfortunately dr neil thank you so much for joining us today so much to think about we'd love to have you back to talk about this topic further i know you've got an awful lot to to say and contribute on the topic of tech and ai and education and where that's going as well um in the meantime though you can be found at fortis education dr neil hopkin thank you for your time thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure In the studio this afternoon, four students who have been chosen from 250 applicants to speak on stage at the Terra Pavilion as part of COP28 come the 8th of December. They will be there talking about their passion for the planet and we've stolen them to get the scoop. And I have to say, it's not my first time meeting these guys. We had a media training session a couple of weeks ago on the Expo site and I'm not not saying my favourites one, but I'm very happy to see your faces. Lovely to be joined in the studio. We've got Faris, we've got Hanin, we've got Yusuf and we've got Sophia uh, joining us from schools across the UAE. Um, I want to start with you, Faris, if you don't mind. For anyone that's not familiar with the Next Gen World Majlis, how did you hear about it and why did you want to apply? First off, hi Helen, it's wonderful to be here. So for the first Gen World Majlis, I learned about it through my teachers, my head of sections, Ms. Wafa and Ms. Bayan. They know that I'm interested in the climate because ever since the ninth grade, I joined the sustainability elective and I started researching more and more. I became head of the ecology club and all that. So they saw me and they're like, you have to do this. This is meant for you. You are the golden <laughs> green boy of Al- like, Al-Gahud. I was, <laughs> I was like, sure, why not? I tried it. I answered honestly and I went through. <laughs> From 250. Hanin, that's massive. Um, tell us a little bit about your motivations for wanting to get involved in, in this Expo Schools program. So I really think that youth representation in the media, especially when it comes to climate change, is one of the most important things to solving any issue. You know, people, they're most likely to follow others who they find relatable and they can relate to. So making sure that youth are seen in the media, seen caring about these topics, that's one of the most important things that we can do to cause any sort of change in the world. I find it really encouraging that there were over 250 students that wanted to take part in this. Were you intimidated by the competition, Yusuf? Why did you want to get involved in this? Well, first of all, I heard about it from my teacher, Ms. Alia. And I'm a student that's like really intellectual when it comes to sustainability. And like I would like to be included in every change, even if it's the smallest. I would like to create a change. And as a motive, like humans would always think of environment as something that's really not important, like green. What's green to us? You get me? Feels meaningless. Yeah. But then when you look back in history, environment is what formed us, is what made us humans of today. You get me? So it really made me motivated to participate in the next gen world majlis. Well, I just want to say, I, I mean, I'm on the radio every single day and I get nervous talking in front of people. So for you guys to put yourselves in that situation, I think is absolutely incredible. Um, Sophia, huge congrats on being here. I also like we've got a you know, two girl, two boy split. Um, what's the process been like? Um, tell us a little bit about the stages that you've had to go through to get down to this final four. Absolutely. Um, we began initially with a presentation uh, from Sarah, who's... Um, does you is part of the UN here in Dubai 
and uh, she taught us all about the uh, SDGs and how they relate to the UAE. And we had a quiz about that. Then the round after that, we had lots of, lots of different workshops from experts from all around Dubai. Mm-hmm. And we also had uh, the third round where we did um, a climate fresque. Where we a, learned what is a climate fresque? It was like an interactive puzzle where we learned about different causes and consequences of climate change just to really make sure that we were completely solid mm-hmm. with our knowledge about the environment. Well, this is the thing. There's so much. There's so much data to be absorbing. Things change all the time, you know, trying to communicate that. And when we think about, you know, I mean, what you kind of learnt through this process, what have been the big standouts, things that you're going to carry forward into your future? Uh, I mean, I really think learning about the sustainable uh, architecture, that was something that was really interesting and like really drew me in. Mm. And I've always been someone who wanted to go into a more scientific field. But after, you know, speaking with Phil, he was like the local celebrity over there at Terra. He spoke to us so much about it. It's honestly made me consider taking a career into architecture and going down that sustainable route. What about you, Faris? When you think about whether it's a fact or... Um, a person, what are you going to be taking forward a part of this next-gen uh, matchless process? So, so throughout this process, we learned so much. We learned scientific information and basically just what to do in our day-to-day life to improve climate change. I'm going to take what we learned and influence it and use it throughout our lives. The key point is that our money is our vote. So I started buying stuff that are more environmentally friendly and I'd always look, is this... a uh, part of greenwashing or is this not greenwashing for those who don't know greenwashing is when brands market this as an environmentally friendly product when in reality it's not just to bring in customers score points yeah yeah so being a more conscious consumer Mm -hmm. that's really interesting what about learning from each other is that something Yusuf you know you obviously come in with a really strong viewpoint but you throw you know hundreds of kids in the mix how is it how's that how's that side been well, yeah, like it's like a society build up. Everyone learns from each other. And I learned from my mates in the competition. They taught me new perspectives of how climate change would work. In my opinion, climate change was something that's draining us, like affecting Earth. But I really didn't like have a delve thought in it. But then when they were talking about their perspectives and stuff, I really like had a pause and I was like, mm-hmm. what's going on with climate change? Like it's a really deep topic. You get me? It is. And I think I think that's the value, isn't it, of coming together and, you know, Sophia kind of hearing other people's perspectives of like, actually, I hadn't considered that. It has been a competition, though. What, what have you what have yeah. you kind of learnt that you think will obviously you'll be speaking about on the stage on December 5th at the Tower Pavilion, but maybe you'll be taking through life as well? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I feel like a lot of people think is that climate change is solely about the environmental aspect and how it impacts global temperature rise and sea level rise, for example. But there is a lot behind the community aspect, the social aspect, as well as the economic aspect that maybe isn't quite um, as prominent in the media. Mm And we learned a lot about that and how important it is to bring people together in order to solve this issue because it can't be done by one single person. Well said. We're going to be talking about some actionable things. What do our four students want all of us to be doing, trying, adjusting for the good of the planet is, of course, ahead of COP28, which launches this coming Thursday. Dubai I 103.8 will be live on the ground throughout. Um, and we'd love to get your take on anything we're talking about today. Um, we're, of course, going to be continuing this conversation on Thursday um, through Iron Education as well. So what message do our four finalists want to share with you about climate action? That's next.
Joining us in studio, we have Faris, we have Yusuf, we have Hanin, we have Sophia. These four students have been chosen from 250 applicants to speak on stage at the Terra Pavilion next week as part of COP28. It's part of the Expo School Programme, the Next Gen World Majlis. And I think it's safe to say that our planet's in pretty safe hands with these guys in charge. Delighted to have, well, I was going to say, you're not at school. It's, it's, it's late afternoon, but I'm glad you've made time to be with us today. Um, I wanted to ask you, Yusuf, about this idea of climate change and climate action, because it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like something, you know, it's it's a runaway train that we can't stop or slow down. And what I've really learned from speaking to you guys today and, and when we were at Terror a few weeks ago is actually there are some very actionable changes. And I, I wondered if you had a message for people listening today about things that we can do, we can try, we can swap or change. Okay, well, to start off, climate change is not a distant threat, but a wave reaching upon our shores. And I want to reach out a message. If Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabr, the CEO of ADNOC, was entrusted with COP28, then everyone could be a change. It's a beacon of hope for humanity. If people that were uh, entrusted with fossil fuels now are entrusted with sustainability, then everyone can make a change. Mm -hmm. It could start by using public transportations. You get me? I'm using the metro for COP next week. Um, Faris, what about attitude? Because I think a lot of us are fearful of climate change. Is that something that you've had to kind of get your head around and explain to people as well? So, yeah, at first, there's this common misconception that climate change is this big, bad monster that's coming to end us all. But we shouldn't look at it that way. Climate change, it's something that's happened all the time, from the ice age to everything, to the present time now. So we shouldn't be afraid of it, rather embrace it, not in that way, like embrace, let's... No, but it's an opportunity, I think. It's an opportunity for us to work together as a society and as a whole world Mm -hmm. to stop that. So we can do that, as Yusuf said, public transport or even the minor changes, the minor decisions we make every day. So let's say I pick up my friend instead of taking two different cars. That alone makes a huge difference. What about working together as a community, Hanin? What what are some of the things that we can be... Yeah, we are trying or maybe trying to put into action ourselves. I mean, I think one thing that you could do for your community is speak with your neighborhood representatives. Just a quick call, send an email, a text, whatever it is, and ask for recycling bins to be put into your community because that's going to reduce everyone's carbon footprint so much and it's going to have such a big impact on how we look at climate change mm-hmm. as a society and as a community. And there are some really great, I mean, think coming off the back of your um, your chat there, Faris, about opportunity, there's some great companies that are using recycling as a great example to incentivize people to say, you give us your plastic, we'll give you a few hundred dirhams. You know, the, 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 smart, the smart people are going to be working in an environment and um, what about you, Sophia? Give us some ideas. In, empower us to make some changes. Yes, absolutely. Um, a lot has been said about how we can impact, um, have an impact on climate change in our personal lives. But I think there's a lot we can do in our professional lives, either as students or as employees in different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, as students, we can advocate for environmental sustainability in our, in our school. We can start eco-committees or ecology clubs, as has been said before. And um, as professionals, as adults working, um, they can start, uh, they can advocate for sustainability as well. For example, an architect could use locally sourced um, building materials such as are used in Terra, mm-hmm. as we learned. Um, there's just a plenty of ways that they can help. And it's a choice, isn't it, to kind of tune into this and say, do you know what, I have got a part to play, Faris. 
So adding on to what Sophia said, as adults, like most people here listening, you guys can make the most change because you are raising the future generation. So if your kids, kids like imitating. If a kid sees their mom recycling, they'll be interested. They're going to say, oh, what's this? Oh, we separate this and that. So that to raise a better future generation for climate change. Just because becomes part of life yeah. and the conversation. I mean, yeah, and I think adding on to what Fires said about kids imitating their parents, it's extremely important because these kids, they're our future generations and they're the ones that are going to shape the futures that we're going to be living in. So making sure from a young age that they understand that climate change isn't this big, scary thing, but rather something that we can work together on fixing is one of the most important things in ensuring a bright future for everyone. Yusuf, what are you saying? And I remember, Helen, you mentioned your daughters <laughs> and how... <laughs> That's and right. how like they would contribute to recycling when they come from school they do and it's funny because when I when I met these guys a few weeks ago, we were doing some media training, and I mean, to be honest with you, they they listen very very well to some of the messages that I'm a total hypocrite about. Like I use my hands way too much, I touch my hair way too much, I speak too quickly. But they really picked up a lot on on some of, and obviously we're really listening. And what I was saying that day was my daughters they were learning about. Um, the orangutans, endangered orangutans, and they came home like, "Mummy, you can't buy that toothpaste anymore because it's got palm oil in it." But I think it does come down to because you know ultimately the future's in your hands. We can make changes now, as you know, as boomers and, and Gen X as millennials. But um, ultimately, you're the ones that are going to be living with the consequences of some of our, of some of our decisions, and, and the kids younger is younger than, than that even. Which, when we think of opportunities in this space, there's going to be an awful lot of jobs around the environment, around sustainability. Sophia, to having gone through this um, this process, has that sparked any ideas, or is this just something you want as part of a, a passion or a hobby? No, I definitely would, would like to pursue something relating to climate change or environmental conservation in the future. Um, so far, I'm looking a bit at engineering pathways, so like geoengineering or environmental engineering. You guys could work together. And then you were saying something similar. Well, not been an amazing story to say we yeah. met when we were teenagers at Expo. Mm-hmm. What about you, Hanin? Oh, well, I've already mentioned this, but I really like after speaking to Phil at the Terra Pavilion, he was the sustainable architect over there. We, we learned so much about the sustainable architecture. And it's honestly such an interesting topic. Like I recommend everyone to just go and look into it because simple things just like the orientation of a building can completely like reduce the need for ACs and lights, just making wind and light easier to flow into the building. And it's such an interesting topic. Yusuf, you'd be a force in the environmental profession. What are you thinking? Well, of course, as I wanted to mention in the Terra Pavilion there, I want to be a surgeon. So when I went back home, I was searching of like sustainable materials that are used in the surgery field. And I found out actually that many hospitals empower their surgery tools with solar energy, which is really wow. interesting. Faris, you're already, you're already spearheading a lot of the eco work at your school. What about after graduation? So after graduation, I've always planned on helping people. At first, I mean, not at first, it's still a confusing cloudy area. I wanted to do medicine, but after this whole whole experience, I think I might go into something related to endangered species and stuff like that to like sort of help the environment. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to see how far you've come. And as I said, you are going to be on stage. You're going to be at COP28. You're going to be there on the, <laughs> the Terra Pavilion stage December 5th. Huge thank you, Faris. Yusuf, Hanin, Sophia are four finalists chosen from more than 200 applicants as part of the Next Gen World Majlis, the Expo Schools programme. I'm not going to say too much about myself, but I wasn't thinking too much about the planet when I was your age. I was doing things that were far less 
serving of the, the world. But I'm feeling really heartened having spoken to you. So thank you so, so much and all the very best. Remember, big smiles, don't fidget, say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. Really appreciate your time. are continuing our climate conversations and talking about all things hospitality now. Joining us live in the studio, delighted to welcome Michael Schmidt. He's the general manager of Conrad Dubai. And I think times have moved on quite a bit, Michael, where hotels only not sustainability would be only put, put your towels in the bath if you want them washed, because there's been some bigger changes than that over the last few years. Tell us a little bit about that topic of sustainability and how it's really come to the fore in hospitality since your time in the industry. First of all, Helen, I am very happy to be here. It's my first time on the radio and uh, to have the first session with you is truly amazing. Oh, I'm thrilled you're here. So I I do believe that hospitality has come a long way since it started. So with Hilton, for example, it started in 2010 when we had a Travel with Purpose program that said that we cut our environmental footprint in half and double our social impact. And since then, there has been more than 7,800 hotels. Now, I've been about uh, for two years at the corner Dubai, and it has been an incredible journey. We started uh, just about that time with uh, really pursuing sustainable excellence in all departments across the hotel. And there is so much to talk about. I think we have, uh, what, 15 minutes? Uh, Not even. But there is so much more. It's a a big job, though, because we think about hotels. We think about, you know, the small plastic bottles of shampoo. We think about a big breakfast buffet. We think, you know, there's a lot of different challenges, I guess, or maybe you see them as opportunities. Can you explain a little bit? And maybe we use the plastic bottles as an example. Do we have any data around numbers, weight, and hopefully some reduction? We do have actually a lot of reductions uh, across uh, the hotel and everything we do. But before I go into the the plastic bottles, maybe I can talk just a little bit about, you know, ESG in general. And maybe I focus on the food waste, which, you know, for hospitality is one of the, the biggest items to reduce. And I'm so blessed to have an executive chef or culinary director. He just recently got promoted. Congrats. Uh, who is doing an amazing job. So... You know, 31% of the global food goes to waste. And from that waste, it contributes 8 to 10% to the global carbon emissions. So to reduce waste is a responsibility that we all have. Mm-hmm. So this year, we embarked on a, an amazing collaboration with Hilton and with the United Nations Environment Program and its recipe of change. And they say half the food waste is double the blessing. We tied up with other partners, whether this is Climato, who... Uh, measures the CO2 emissions. We work with Waste Lab who collects our waste and uh, makes compost out of it. So we have done a lot of things to reduce waste and with all the initiatives, for example, on educating our guests uh, on being aware to always come back to take more or you know, have though, our chefs uh, make sure that we cook according to, uh, to bookings, mm-hmm. you know, have more live cooking stations. So everything that basically was on the buffet or on the plates from the guests, we measured. And then we tracked it, we recorded it, we put it in our light stay system. And ultimately, you just spoke about numbers, Alan. Uh, we saved up to 70% of our food waste. Wow. And I'm really happy uh, and the team is happy you know, to have been part of the story with Hilton and the United Nations. Uh, and there's going to be a white paper that is uh, going to be issued uh, very soon. And there is going to be a very clear message 
we all can make an impact. We, we, and we absolutely can. I think it's, it's a choice as, you know, working in hospitality because it's not necessarily the easy thing to do to bring in consultants, to bring in measurements, to say this is something that we're really invested in. I mean, that, that, it's not. It's, an, it's a bit of an expensive headache for an awful lot of people. However, when you think about long-term games the planet also short short-term wins on on balance sheets as well it makes a huge amount of sense can i come back to that guest um education because that must be a, a difficult balance between wanting to say to people and i, I just said this the other day actually i was in slovenia over the summer and it was there it's an incredible country you know so green in so many ways and little wooden signs all around the buffets which yeah. was you know take what you want but eat what you take um how do you kind of toe that line between wanting to Tell guests that you are a hotel that's committed to sustainability without getting into lecturing or, you know, patronizing. We're actually having a lot of guests, or actually most of the guests, and, you know, we take pride in all our sustainability initiatives. And whenever we talk to in-house guests or even clients, they really appreciate, you know, the efforts that we put in. And we start talking about uh, guests who want to have a big business with us. We talk to them about our meeting impact calculator and how we offset CO2 with all our various initiatives. And they say it is so important. Recently, we had a company, one of our biggest companies, actually, who said, could you help us set up some um, sustainability criteria? But here's one example, because you were talking about the room a little bit earlier. We had um, changed uh, in our rooms the, the way that we make the beds. So in the beginning, it, we said, okay, every luxury hotel, um, the bed must be changed, the bed linen must be changed every day. And then we said, but hey, we're trying to be more sustainable. And we said, you need to sleep in the bed for three times, right? And uh, we still make the bed. We put it nicely in order. We make it look good. But if you want to have a change, there's a little card. You just put it on the pillow. So we had the guests coming down uh, to reception, creaming, shouting, fuming. And then we explained. And he said, well, but how dare you not make the bed? I want to have a complimentary room night. We explained about the card. We explained the reasons, you know, that we care about mm -hmm. the one planet we all share. And while we spoke, Spoke, you could see his face the changing. Turning. You could see how he worked on the information. And then he started to have a positive uh, a facial expression. And he said, oh, my goodness, this is so cool. So <laughs> I can be part of this change. And uh, we said, yes, you can. And it was amazing. It but was it, truly amazing. It, but it is, you know, people have certain expectations. And I think when you start to say exactly the why, not just the what, but the why, reduce food waste, what about whether it is growing or working with local farmers? How, how is that translating to the kitchen as well, Michael? Yeah, part of um, our Green Ramadan initiative was also working with uh, local farms. And, you know, we're here in the Dubai, in Dubai or in the UAE, we import a lot of food, right? And it's all about reducing the foot miles. And Hilton has a program uh, for that. So we try to purchase as much as possible from local farms. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really pleased. And this is, you spoke a little bit earlier about investments. I want to come back to this one. We just tied up with a company to install a hydroponic farm at our hotel on the sixth floor. So we will be growing our own salads and Zero our own miles. herbs. And we get every day about 10 kg of fresh herbs, no pesticides, you know, all beautifully done. Wow. It is truly amazing. But to come back to, to the investment, um, particularly when you're talking about environment, um, if you talk about what's and water and mm -hmm. waste. So 
we started a LED project in our hotel and we are we started to exchange more than uh, 8000 light bulbs and it's a project of 40000 light bulbs oh, that wow. will be exchanged and that will see a saving of 4 million kilowatt per hour as well as you mentioned the bottom line uh, yeah. 1 million plus savings for the bottom line so it is a very compelling uh, a proposition if it comes to water uh, we are about to install more than 2,100 water filters to reduce the water flow of 2 liters per minute. And once again, this will save 8 million liters of, uh, of water, right? And all that, I have to say, we're not just putting this in place, but we have installed some of these filters in guest rooms and then very innocently asked the guest about their bathroom and shower experience. <laughs> and we always got good, very good, good comments and once we had tried this out for about three weeks we said no complaints we go ahead and it is Brilliant. a little bit of an investment no, uh, no doubt for the greater good but it's for the greater good and there is also an roi within uh, eight months michael schmidt i really hope other hoteliers are listening today and i certainly think as guests we need to be making more informed decisions yes to relax and kick back but to have a bit of a, a guilt-free experience i think about the planet um we've had a number of people wanting to connect with you i'm going to send them your details i'll connect you off air because i know we've got some great companies here in the uae who would love to be part of your initiatives and your vision um in the meantime you can be found i'm sure working long hours as hospitality is <laughs> as the gm at conrad's dubai michael schmidt it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me thank you The clock is ticking down this weekend. The Emirates Dubai 7s, we of course will be broadcasting there, giving you all the action from on and probably off the pitches. But it's not just rugby. And telling us what's in store over those three days, we've got Matthew Tate. He has gone from professional rugby player to his current role in organising. And he's managed to put the Excel spreadsheets down for the next few minutes. How are the stress levels, Matthew? Yeah, they're all right. I'm saying that I'm lying completely. They're off, they're off the charts at the moment, but I'm all good, thank you. But your hard work is for our enjoyment. So thank you so, so much. Um, what? How long, what's been going on behind the scenes and for how long to lead up to one of the highlights of Dubai's calendar? Well, the planning for this year's event really starts the day after or a couple of days after last year's event in no terms way. of reviewing and implementing what we're going to do. But I guess the, the main on-site delivery has been the last three or four months, really, and it's... I've just come away from site now and it's fairly manic down there. So Good. we've got all sorts of suppliers in, we've got all the F&B trucks been dropped in, partner activations. There's, it's a very, very busy site getting ready for hopefully handover tomorrow ahead of various different inspections and obviously welcoming Yay. all our uh, visitors and athletes on Friday. It's not just rugby. I think that's that's been a, a bit of a misconception that we've been addressing over the last couple of years. And in fact, you've got other sports happening on site, including the debut of paddle. Have you played? I have against my one of my my kids actually my eight year old who's a dab hand with a with a how did with it a, go he won um, he's actually quite a dab hand at it so he rushes around the courts but you know I mean the tournament itself the festival itself sorry dropped the name rugby a couple of years ago deliberately um, it is very much a it's a celebration of sport music entertainment notwithstanding you know we have our world series athletes that take part on on pitch one and that's the the tradition or the heritage of the event, but actually it's expanded out over over multiple years to the you know, the inclusion of paddle this year as our as our fifth sport. We introduced uh, CrossFit Wadon our Wadon competition last year, which is 
going from strength to strength. We so. had a doctor sitting in that chair just yesterday who's going to be competing in the CrossFit competition. There's netball, there's cricket sevens as well. So loads to see. I mean, for me, I think about it as being, especially, you know, Friday, such a family-friendly afternoon. And the kid zone sounds bigger and better than ever before. I'm hearing whispers about giant crazy golf, a silent disco. Is that right? Possibly. Yeah, no, there is going to be a silent disco. Yeah, we've, we've, we've moved the kid zone from where it was last year in order for us to expand it. It's behind the DHL family stand. So that the transition from nice. playing to, to watching the, the World Series action on pitch one on Saturday and Sunday is, is, a, is a lot easier. And there's... There is basically something for everyone down there, be families to partygoers to sports fans. It's it's going to be a great weekend. Tots to teens and uh, and and beyond. Can we talk food? You mentioned some of the some of the food vendors are arriving on site. We're going to be well fed. What are you looking forward to eating? Oh, there's there's, there's a range. We've got you know, ice cream providers. We've got our burgers, chips, through to our healthier options. Pret a manger here this year. Yay, yeah, Pret! Yeah, so that's. Hope they're doing a Christmas sandwich. Well, I'll make sure. Well, I'll, I'll go back and make sure that's on the menu. So we've got, yeah, there's, there's pickles. So there's all the kind of the, the fans' favourites. And then we've got some, some Asian options. Just like make it really multicultural and lots of options for everyone. So it isn't you, just your burgers and chips and yeah. your traditional maybe sort of more festival and unhealthy food there is healthy options there for everyone to tuck into i think it's this kind of convergence isn't it of you know it being the most incredible weather at this time of year although i have had a couple of rainy sevens in my days but I, weirdly they were, re- they were probably the most fun it was yeah. getting absolutely drenched but you know the sun is shining the the weather's just fantastic it's good vibes people are in that party spirit when it comes to um, sales of tickets like internationally tourists and residents can you work out a split what are you expecting this year well we deliberately went out earlier with ticket sales this year to try and target that uh, that international market and that's both in terms of our invitational team so it's about a 50 50 split in terms of the the invitational athletes that come in there is really is this sort of pilgrimage into dubai mm-hmm. everyone descends annually to take part in the various different sports i would think over the over the fans coming in it will be still quite heavily towards dubai and the the gcc but we are seeing i would say about 15 percent international audience coming in because there's so much to do in dubai it's not just necessarily about coming to the sevens but you can come and enjoy enjoy the festivities build it in enjoy all the the sites that uh, dubai has to offer fancy dress we've only got a minute left um land and sea is the theme this year um i don't know if you know robbie greenfield who's on off script after us but he has done some absolutely spectacular fancy dress over the years probably spent a small fortune actually he's had suits made to look like a matador you know the blue and orange suits from dumb and dumber I do, 12 of them Excellent. <laughs> that. now i don't think he's gonna be going this year because there's going to be a, a new arrival in the family and two new arrivals in the family um but for the fancy dress this is encouraged right yeah absolutely it makes the the weekend that yeah. much more fun and the land and sea is a nod to obviously cop and sustainability as well so in, in keeping with, with that messaging. But yeah, be as creative as uh, as you feel fit and spend as much as you see fit on, uh, on <laughs> Get your Get yourself outfit. down to exactly. Southwell. It's not too late. Um, on the music front, you've got some UK garage legends. You've got DJ Luck and MC Neat. You've got Becky Hill. You've got... It's, it's going to be... It's going to be starting early and probably finishing quite late. Um, a message going, are there still tickets? Aisha's asking. Yes, there is. DubaiRugby7s.com. Um, there are yeah, general admission and reserved options, limited options still available, but there are still options available. Matthew Tate, thank you so much. Um, you probably have a little nap in the green room before you get back to site, but really appreciate you making the time. I think it's, it is really a highlight for so many people, as we said, get the chance to see some world-class rugby, but bring the family together, bring the fans together, eat some food, get dressed up. 
Silent Disco. Sign me up. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.